this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon. My name is Brian Topher, Principal Architect of Topher Architecture, and you are listening to New Books Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network dedicated to architecture and its publications. If you have any suggestions to authors who you'd love to hear me speak with next, feel free to send me an email at btopher at topherarchitecture.com. Today's guest is Andrew Witt to talk about his book, Formulations. Andrew is an associate professor in practice at Harvard University Graduate School of Design and co-founder of Certain Measures, a studio working at the intersection of architecture and science. Andrew, thank you for being here with me today, and welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. So before we begin, can you tell the audience a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, so my background actually before getting into architecture was in mathematics and philosophy. I did a little bit of work on the history of architecture. Uh, and then after getting a professional degree in architecture, I did a lot of work actually around digital design, uh, applying uh, computational and software tools to uh, make very complex buildings uh, possible. For the last few years, uh, a partner and I have developed this new practice, certain measures that apply some of those ideas uh, to kind of like reconceive how design might be, might be practiced. Interesting. And so you kind of answered this a little bit in the uh, the background you just gave us. But the first question I had was, you know, I, I, I don't say this often, but when looking through the book, it has some of the coolest illustrations and graphics I've ever seen. And so, you know, I guess I'd wonder if you could elaborate for us a little more. What drew you to this facet of architecture that I personally don't see a lot of people showing much enthusiasm for? Yeah, well, one of the things that shaped uh, a lot of my thinking over the last few years was beginning to understand how uh, how digital tools were transforming the practice of design, and really how those tools became a way to access knowledge and technique and processes and ways of making form that just that just weren't possible before. And so, uh, really, what I wanted to unpack was, you know, first of all, those kinds of those kinds of uh, changes and transformations, were they something that were entirely new or was there some sort of history to this process of architecture or of architects uh, engaging with mathematical and scientific processes uh, to create 
to create form. And so the book is really about that kind of history, a kind of like prehistory of digital design, where architects were engaging with exactly those kinds of questions. They were looking at mathematical forms, they were looking at mathematical processes, they were looking at mathematical techniques, and trying to understand how those things could be productively and creatively applied to the discipline of architecture. And so, you know, I think that another, again, I think yours is going to get a lot more of the bigger question, the vague ones than maybe other interviews. And so the question I had for you, and we did talk about this briefly before we started. So what, I, I understand it might be tough to kind of summarize this, but what are you trying to tell us with your book? I think it's yeah. an interesting message. <laughs> yeah. So basically what I'm trying to say is that there's a history of people who experimented with mathematical technique that went back, you know, at least a century and uh, and arguably much further. And that that way of experimenting with mathematical ideas and forms and processes is something that tells us a lot about the transformation of practice today uh, in connection with uh, in connection with digital tools. And it also has a lot to say about sort of uh, how architecture interacts with other disciplines. Uh, I think, you know, People think of architecture as a discipline, which is, you know, it's part art, part part science, and sort of like interacts with a whole range of other uh, other kinds of fields. And in fact, I wanted to understand at a little bit more basic level what that meant. What does it mean for architecture to interact with science? What does it mean for architecture to sort of like take on the tools of science or the tools of geometry or the tools of mathematics? And so it's very interesting. I said, I think I made it clear just you know how fascinated I am by a lot of this. And so I think one thing, and you know, maybe it, I apologize if this is getting a little off topic, but you had mentioned you know that your your firm kind of talks about it, this is what your firm specializes in. And so I was wondering if you could tell uh, the viewers and myself because I am interested, maybe what that looks like. What what kind of project are you taking on? How, how does how does that work? Yeah. So one thing that my partner, Tobias Nolte, and I were interested in doing when we first began certain measures a few years ago was to take those processes of um, almost a kind of like scientific approach to design and also especially the process of uh, building software and creating tools and thinking about those as kind of like an integral part of the design process, not something that's sort of like secondary and incidental, but actually a core part of the creative process of design. And so what we've done is develop this practice, uh, certain measures, which takes on a range of different kinds of projects, some kind of like at a cultural level in the context of art and museum spaces, and some sort of uh, in the space of design where we're designing sort of like uh, buildings or environments or sort of experiences of the future. Uh, and, you know, basically fusing art and science in uh, in one practice. That's That's the project of certain measures. And so it's interesting that you mentioned the intersection of art and science. You know, I... I, I, again, there's quite a bit of in what I was going through the book that surprised me. I, I would never have thought in an architecture book I'd see a, a Max Ernst painting. You know, for those who aren't familiar, a very famous surrealist artist. And so could you tell us a little bit, and I know that's not the only artist that shows up. Again, I do know that architecture is considered kind of art, but I, I don't think many people kind of literally look at it as this art form. And again, maybe this is with the science background. And so Hopefully this question makes sense. Could you talk to us a little bit more about this idea of integrating art into architecture? Yeah. So, I mean, I could talk about it also uh, specifically in the context of the book. I mean, the, the Max Ernst example is, yeah, that's a really interesting example for me because basically the um, the etching that you're referring to is this sort of 
collage of the Venus de Milo and this sort of mathematical mathematical surface. And uh, what's interesting about that collage is that basically Ernst's way of way of working was taking all sorts of catalogs, catalogs of sort of like, you know, classical statuary, catalogs of mathematical surfaces, catalogs of every description, and beginning to sort of like splice those things together to create new kinds of new kinds of forms. And as it turns out, the mathematical surfaces that he used, the catalog that he used, was the same catalog that Le Corbusier, Le Corbusier was looking at when he was thinking about projects like the Phillips Pavilion. So if if anyone's familiar with the Phillips Pavilion, it's this very kind of like well-known, uh, uh, well-known project of Le Corbusier and uh, Yannick, Yannick Zanakis that used ideas of mathematical surfaces uh, to develop a kind of uh, pavilion for for light and sound, a kind of like experiential media-based pavilion. And what was interesting is that you know these kinds of these books of mathematical surfaces were circulating among artists, among architects, among a whole range, basically like the creative class of the mid 20th century. And they became this kind of like partial inspiration for certain new approaches to form and geometry and space. And so, and thank you very much for explaining that. And so you're taught, you know, a a little while back, you had mentioned that there's a bit of prehistory and some historical background in the book. And one thing that I found very interesting was, again, I don't want to keep coming back to the drawings, but there's a lot of technical drawings. And there's even quite a bit of the book dedicated to speaking about, you know, stereographic drawing tools. I'm going to butcher this, you know, the the theodolite, the JT rule. Did I get it? And so there's quite a few drawing machines that are taught. And I guess, again, I, I personally have not talked to anyone who went into depth about the actual drawing tools themselves. And so could you maybe explain to us a little bit why that was so important? Yeah. So, you know, drawing machines for me are this this kind of like precursor for the digital design tools that we use as a matter of course today. But one of the things that's key about them is that they sort of like packaged up various ways of uh, working with geometry in a way that the operator didn't have to know a lot of technical details. Basically, if you have if you have the drawing machine, you can create amazing things just by knowing how to use the drawing machine, but not necessarily knowing the mathematics um, underlying that. And so there's actually this very long and kind of um, an interesting and rich history of uh, architects accessing very complex geometric processes through drawing machines and actually a history of architects developing their own drawing machines to access some of those, uh, some of those drawing techniques. So like, and that's a very interesting point. And I think what I, what I'm, what I was getting at and you went there without me even having to goad you is there is a debate that comes up a lot about this whole idea of parametric software. You know, the idea that a lot of us can draw and model very complicated things. And some might argue that maybe we're, modeling and drawing things that we don't have a full understanding or design background in. And so, I mean, do you see a correlation there between the idea of architects creating a drawing machine and that's just evolving now, or do you think that these are unrelated? Yeah. So in the, in the last chapter of the book, the sort of conclusion of the book, I look at this sort of relationship between uh, expertise and sort of like what I call dilettantism. So people just sort of like, uh, you know, doing exactly what you say, sort of like accessing forms without necessarily understanding process. But in the context of the book, actually, I think I take a kind of generous approach to that, to that practice, because actually I think part of the part of the interest of the book is understanding how those things, which are kind of foreign to architecture, those sort of like scientific uh, 
techniques, how they, uh, how they enter into architecture. And often the first way that that happens is by somebody uh, in an enterprising and adaptive and sort of uh, naive way, taking some of those forms and just sort of like putting them into a composition or putting them into the idea of sort of, uh, of a building. And that kind of naivete in a way is actually an important part of the way that architecture begins to interact with other with other disciplines. So, you know, although there is this kind of, um, there are limitations to that kind of process, there are limitations to kind of like not understanding what's going on within the black box, uh, there's also a kind of value in it. And I think it's actually the, um, the, the first step in, a, you know, potentially a kind of like rich cross-disciplinarity. Well, that's an interesting opinion. And thank you for kind of walking us through that. And so, you know, as I hinted at when I, before we started, you know, math has never been my strong suit. And I think there's a lot of architects that might follow that opinion. And so there is one mathematical concept that does seem to show up quite a bit in the book. And thankfully due to YouTube, I'm actually familiar with it. And so the idea of type topology, you know, I guess without turning this into a quiz, I mean, could you walk our viewers through that idea and how it, you, you tie it into the book and its relevance? Yeah, so topology has, there are a couple of different aspects of topology, but one of the kind of like maybe most familiar visually is this uh, this way of understanding uh, sort of like twisted or distorted or transformed surfaces, things like the Mobius strip, this, this strip which actually only has one side or the Klein bottle. Uh, topology is this way of kind of creating a system for understanding very complex surfaces. And Actually, you know, this, you know, in the 90s and early 2000s, this became a really sort of like fertile area of architectural research where you have people like UN Studio and others uh, really thinking about what the, you know, how you apply topology to design spaces and organizations for buildings. But the book sort of also argues that 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 interest in topology and architecture actually went to at least the 30s. And so I trace a little bit of a history of uh, of how those ideas of uh, complex surfacial forms and uh, topological conversation actually emerged decades earlier. Interesting. And kind of going on to that, you know, in the in, quite a bit in the book, you talk about the grid and the cube, and of, of course, I'm sure every architect knows why they're why they're valuable. However, even though you talk about them a lot and you make very strong cases, you know, not, I, I don't think a single image is a grid or a cube, and so maybe that's a bit of a leading question. But I, could you kind of talk to us a little bit about the grid or the cube as a starting point, but then going off using mathematics and science? Yeah. So actually there's a book devoted to cubic or sort of like voxelized geometry. And in, in that chapter, I mean, there, there are actually several images that are cubic in nature, but one of the things that I think is interesting about those images is that they're never only grids and they're never only cubes. The cubes or grids are always in conversation with some larger geometry. They're a way to kind of like represent a, the assembly of a building, or they're a way to kind of uh, bound or demarcate complex uh, complex geometries or forms. And that was one of the things that I think was very interesting about how architects thought about the cube and thought about sort of voxelized geometry in the past or sort of like gridded geometry is that it was always in negotiation with some, some architectural end. And, you know, often architects would actually expand on those architectural ends and begin to think of those systems as 
systems, not just for thinking about single buildings or spaces, but actually ways of organizing entire societies and economies. So what's interesting about that chapter in particular is you have um, you have a number of architects, like for example, Yona Friedman um, or the, um, the, uh, the sort of guys who are doing the cubic construction compendium who are thinking about uh, how the simple idea of a cube can become this way to regulate much larger systems. And I think that's also kind of like a microcosm in a way for uh, for mathematics or sort of like a metaphor for mathematics in the ways that it's, that it's often used for architects as this way to access much larger systems that might span beyond the individual buildings. Very interesting. And so, of course, we could stay here all day and I could quiz you on the, the thousands of mathematical concepts you have in here. But one question I'm always curious about is uh, so now that the book has kind of completed, and I know you are actually about to launch it, is that correct? It hasn't launched yet. Yeah, well, I mean, it's 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 out. It's published. We're going to have an official launch event uh, soon, March twenty sixth, at the Center for Architecture in New York. And for those of you listening, that date will have passed, unfortunately, by the time you hear this. But but so now that the book has uh, come out, though, I guess what what is next? What project are you? Have you moved on? What 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 is, what is occupying your time now? Yeah, so uh, a lot of our work has been, you know, historically related to, um, you know, the application of technology and architecture, and more and more, we're interested in how that technology shapes or transforms the home. And so we've been looking a lot, actually, at how uh, at domestic robots, how robots are going to be a part of the home, how actually they're already kind of like a part of the home to some extent with things like Roombas and uh, I have a other, few, yes. Yeah, perfect. You already, you already have a roboticized house. Um, so it's interesting also that there's also that there's a bit of a prehistory to that idea of the robotic house. And so one of the projects that I'm getting into now is a kind of uh, is is a kind of history of the the robotic house, kind of in relationship to, to the smart home, but also um, in relationship to uh, robots as a kind of um, as an as a kind of industrial technology. Interesting. It should be very interesting. It does sound very interesting. Maybe we could talk again in the future about that. It'll be a few years before that's few, done, but yes. <laughs> no, it's not quick. Well, again, I want to thank you very much for, for talking with us. For those of you listening, again, there's a lot of images that you just aren't seeing when you hear us. So, But, Andrew, thank you again for talking with me today. Okay, sure. Yeah, thanks. And for those of you listening, the book is Formulations by Andrew Witt. Thank you again for listening, and have a great day.